1: With us, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gourney Institution and Winn Angel Chair of Economics. We have Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. We have Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gourney Professor of Economic Education and Research. And finally, Nate Johnson, my fellow producer and graduate assistant.
0: All right, well, today we thought we'd talk about war. What is it good for? Absolutely not. But sorry, guys, I had to do that part. <laughs> we were singing the song earlier a little bit. I decided to spare uh, the listeners that part. But so Russia's interested in grabbing onto Ukraine, it seems, or potentially. And and so we thought it would be good to discuss that a bit, but also maybe just talk in general about wars and issues and philosophy and, and that sort of thing and throw weave in a little bit of faith. So currently the troops are building up around Ukraine as you know probably the Crimea was taken over how long ago was that you guys four years ago seemed like it was when Crimea Lenny when took over that it was about probably four years ago and so now Ukraine is a lot bigger chunk and Kiev is a big city and, and so there's lots of different issues going on and I think one of the things we want to touch on in this podcast is should the United States Basically, have Ukraine's back, or
1: should we stay out of it? So, I don't
0: know, Justin. You want to help tease out some of those issues, um, whether we should get into other countries or not, or Peter, you want to? Yeah, talk?
1: I can add a little more context first. One of the recent headlines is that Ted Cruz was heading up a bill to try to impose sanctions on Russia, and the sanctions are related to their Nord Stream Two, I think, is it pipeline. Yeah. Uh, this pipeline is basically an oil or a natural gas pipeline from Russia to Germany. And the comments by Cruz and some of the senators who supported this, by the way, the bill failed, which I see is a, a good thing. But the people who support this bill say, well, this hurts the security of Eurasia is, is the reasoning and i haven't actually been able to find anybody explain why exactly i could probably steel man their arguments but i i can't figure out what the the argument is so this is part of it too and it's related to the ukraine stuff that a lot of people are worried that russia is becoming too dominant of a force in europe so real quick russ the, the crimea date was 2014. 2014 so, wow. yeah and when um, mm-hmm. you say that people were saying it hurts the so that, that, that was Ted Cruz's ju- justification for the sanctions. The, the pipeline would hurt. Yes, the security of Eurasia. The security of Eurasia. My, my guess is that, again, this is a steel man of an argument. I actually think that there's a more petty reason people are supporting this, but the steel man of the argument is probably something like that if Russia is able to become the main exporter of oil and natural gas in Europe, other countries will become dependent on them and they'll be able to expand you know, their borders into Ukraine and things like that. That's my guess of what they're saying. And just to let me show how
2: everything is kind of connected, like the one of the reasons why Germany would need energy from Russia is because the Germans have shut down their nuclear plants. And so, one of the reasons that Western Europe needs excess energy is because they've taken these and implemented these policies that have destroyed their ability to produce enough energy on their own, in particular by getting rid of nuclear. So mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, you got to think nuclear is right around the corner again, because I heard something in Germany that they've they've almost maxed out the wind farms, like they physically can't put up more wind farms, or they're coming very close to that. And then they've learned that that only is a fraction of the energy they need. (laughs) And they've already maxed out the wind farms. So I think the nuclear option seems to be back in, um, I hate to say good graces, but even environmentalists, I think, are coming around to the idea that Let's figure out how to do this safely, or safely in their eyes, or whatever. So, I, I think with with threats of Russia, if that's where we need to go, and we don't like to be dependent,
2: it seems like nuclear is just going to be a natural th- place to go. Yeah. The other thing I think this can highlight too is that when you have superpowers that are even, you know, maybe not even overtly in conflict, but at least even slightly antagonistic the way they fight with each other isn't always by sending troops to battle against each other. Right. They, Mm -hmm. they will try to block, you know, trade, which is, you know, what we were trying to do by stopping the Nord Stream. Or, you know, if you look at it like from a realpolitik angle on what, you know, Russia would be doing, what Ted Cruz was scared that they were doing is, Oh no, we're going to get Europe hooked on us. And then we will (laughs) be able to control Western Europe. Right. So, There are different modes of combat rather than just explicitly, you know, bang, bang, shooting each other. Right, right. And one of the things that I think is going on when people talk about, oh, you know, it's so scary that uh, this could start World War Three between the U.S. and Russia or whatever, is this kind of denial that these kinds of things are already happening. Right. We are already kind of jabbing economically with Russia yeah. and, the, and some of these jabs have already <clears throat> landed. Well, since this is the Faith and Economics podcast, I
0: have to remind the listeners that when we impose sanctions, we don't just hurt Russia, we hurt ourselves. Uh, when we open up for trade with other countries, it, it creates a win-win for both countries. Just like when we engage with trade with anybody, uh, voluntary trade leads to both parties engaged in trade winning, which then means if we restrict trade through various forms of sanctions, not only are we hurting Russia, but to some degree, we're hurting ourselves, too. And so um, I always think we think that that's the easy thing to do. Like it's a, uh, you know, first step is is sanctions, it seems like. But we really do cause uh, disruptions and hurt other parties that don't get recognized.
2: And not only are we trying to sanction Russia, right, and impose economic sanctions on Russia, but we're also giving a bunch of aid to Ukraine. So there was a, you know, NPR headline. Today, two days ago, no. today, the US will provide $200 million in military aid to Ukraine amid the crisis. Mm -hmm. Now, what a lot of our military aid that we provide, whether it's to Ukraine or, you know, this aid gets provided to countries like Israel too, is we give them money to buy our weapon systems. (laughs) Uh, So it ends up being a kind of giveaway from the US taxpayers to uh, the US military industrial complex and that might you might think well you know ukraine needs to defend themselves well look at it from russia's perspective right would you would we be so ecstatic about russia providing arms to say canada or mexico if canada or mexico were uh, you know if we were engaged in some kind of antagonism with either of the two and uh, it might be the case that uh, you know at least what i would think is something like we that is literally on the other side of the globe and maybe we don't need to be sticking our noses in the russia ukraine tiff um i'm not certain what that buys the u.s citizens who i think are the clients of the u.s government right the u.s government ought to be looking out for the well-being of its own citizens and i'm not sure what our involvement here actually buys us. yeah i'd
0: like you to comment just a little bit further you started to there on some people would push back on that and say well we have a moral obligation to to help them
2: what would be your response to that great set up a uh, nonprofit, non and people can donate it to uh, donate to it if they want wow that's not um, the response i was expecting but that's a wonderful response <laughs> a free market response yeah yeah so if you think that you have a moral obligation fine i also think you have a moral obligation not to force me to contribute to things that you think are moral obligations but i don't
1: yeah um, yeah no, no that's a that's a great point so uh, along with you know arming people in a conflict against you there's also something kind of weird if you step back and think about it a second about trying to prevent this pipeline the pipeline is just a way for russia essentially to sell oil to germany uh, and some other european countries as well a little bit closer to germany than to russia and so Why do we believe, or why would, uh, by the way, 55 senators ended up supporting Ted Cruz's bill, and so it was uh, most Republicans, uh, Rand Paul was one exception, I think there were a couple who didn't vote for it, Uh, but there were some Democrats who supported it as well, notably uh, Warren Cock out of Georgia, who barely won that race, he supported the sanctions uh, as well. It seems, and and so in our Senate, we basically need 60 to pass, otherwise something can get filibustered. And so you need kind of this uh, bigger majority of of 60, 40 vote. And so it only had 55, so the bill failed. Democrats, by the way, have created a new bill that now says we're only going to impose sanctions if Russia does anything to Ukraine. So it's maybe a little bit more moderate than Ted Cruz's blanket. You can't build this pipeline sanction. But it, it's, it's so odd to, to step back and think of this as, you know, if you step outside of your own country and you think of two countries and one of them says to the other one, no, you're not allowed to build this pipeline and sell gas to this other country. <laughs> like the, my first thought is like, like, who do you think you are that you have the ability to tell two countries like I'm sorry I don't think it's you I don't think that there's going to be sufficient security if you're allowed to have this pipeline it's like. <laughs> I don't care if you think there's going to be sufficient security. I'm just like, we're selling something that we have to someone else. Our companies are selling to German companies. So, at the end of the day, the, this is like a kind of an absurd proposal. And I think it. the fact that normal people, I think you recognize this. Like if you just talk to someone like, Hey, why would we, you know, be able to tell Russia whether or not they can build a pipeline? I think the fact that most normal people recognize that this is kind of weird I think it communicates how far off like our national security establishment is from like reality. That the national security establishment in this country believes like we should basically be able to determine if two countries get to trade oil with each other, and like this is totally normal. Whereas like you know if you, any other country in the world proposed this, if any other country in the world said no, you're not allowed to build there, to the United States, we would all freak out. So I just wanted to to bring out, but not only is it arms, but we're actually like actively preventing or trying to prevent, we we failed in this case, but trying to prevent business dealings. And uh, Rand Paul even was interviewed about this and and he was asked, like, well, you know, isn't this bad for the Ukraine? He said, well, I've asked the supporters of this bill, like, what does Russia need to do for this to be okay? And they won't give him an answer. And it's like, okay, so you just don't want the pipeline. That's what it is. Like, there's no behavior you can change. You're just not okay with Russia having a pipeline. So it, it seems like insanity to me.
0: Yeah, what do you think of the argument that um, I could hear some people giving that if we let this happen, if we ignore the Ukraine Russia conflict, then this might spread to us and then they'll start taking over more and build up, and long term it'll hurt us. So we need to take measures now in the short term, even though we could stay distanced, because in the long term it's in the United States' best interest. So they're trying to tell some sort of best interest argument thinking longer term. So Justin, what do you, what do you think yeah. so
2: this might spread to us? What might spread to us? <laughs> and what is the mechanism by which it spreads? Like, I don't I don't think that I don't, first of all, I don't know what that means. But I do think that people make this kind of long term best interest yeah. argument. And I just have to say, I think that the track record for the predictions yes. of this has been I mean these people are batting zero. Um so no, I don't believe you. I can clearly see though that it is obviously in the long-term best interest of like the military industrial complex. Yeah, yeah. And when I look, you know, Cui Bono, who's going to benefit here? Oh, well that seems like it's obviously the case that this benefits the military industrial complex at the expense of taxpayers at home
1: and people abroad. Yeah, I think the problem with arguments like that, because like it actually, like in theory, there's nothing wrong with this argument, right? It is possible that some foreign aggressor, Russia today, I'm sure people in this argument would point to Nazi Germany and like how appeasement strategies didn't work with them. It's totally possible that some country could expand and try to continue to expand, and just appeasing them is not going to satisfy them. It's possible, of course. The problem is that we can't base our decisions today off of like maybes of tomorrow, at least not like really, really like unsure maybes. It's like, you know, if we educate our children, could one of them use the education to undermine society and hurt people? Yeah, but this isn't like this isn't a good reason not to provide an education. If we allow parents to purchase an education, could this undermine society? Yes, again, we could have an educated maniac who destroys the world. Could it hurt the U.S. technically if we allow Russia and Germany to trade oil together? Sure. Russia getting richer, the country getting richer, could allow it to expand in a way that eventually hurts the United States or United States citizens. It's possible. But there are a lot of things in the world that are possible. And we we need something better than kind of an old arguments that's been brought. You know, this argument's been used for hundreds of years that if we don't stop this country from growing economically, or growing their borders, that it's going to come to us tomorrow. It just doesn't follow. And you need more evidence than that like you know, possibility.
2: And we've seen throughout history and especially throughout the history of you know, the Department of Defense, which used to be called the Department of War before it was renamed, right? <laughs> the entire point of these arguments is to kind of erase the difference between defense and offense and to claim that our offense is actually just defense, right? And almost all just war theory as a theories that try to explain when and why war is permissible and say that, well, a kind of war that's permissible is a defensive war when you are being attacked. Uh, but when you can twist somebody else's existence into an attack on your sovereignty, then that's going to permit you to do, you know, to take offense against yes, them, right? Like
0: them laying a pipeline across those borders is a, an attack on me. We gotta somehow yeah. do that. All right. Well, this looks like a good spot for break. I think we got lots of stuff to hit. But one of those things I want to hit is the Christian who says, oh, but you guys are all wrong. You got to love thy neighbor as yourself. And those poor Ukraine people, the Bible tells us we got to help them out too. So we'll be back in just a bit.
2: Please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If you use iTunes, please consider giving us a five-star review. It helps people find us. We'd like to do a mailbag episode, so please send your questions to gortney.institute at gmail.com. The Gortney Institute at Ottawa
0: University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom, justice, and its impact on human flourishing. Faith and economics in action. The Gortney Institute is calling all moms and dads of high school juniors and seniors. Uh, We have a couple events coming up. Where you and your high school junior, senior, maybe it's a, a mom-son, maybe it's a father-son, maybe it's a dad-daughter, whatever your combination, come to Ottawa University. We're gonna do a book club on Bitcoin. So if you're interested in learning about Bitcoin, Dr. Clark's gonna lead a discussion group on that. And then Dr. Uh, Peter Jacobson is going to be talking about inflation. Inflation's affecting us all right now, and it's a hot topic. So come and join us for that. Look for details on how you can sign up and join in here in the upcoming weeks.
2: Don't forget to check out our show notes where you'll find a timeline and other information about the podcast that will be helpful. You can find that at anchor Economics. Okay, we're back. So
0: lots of things to cover here. I want, uh, we'll circle back to, I'd like Justin to explain a little more in detail. What does the military industrial complex mean? I think that, It's very complicated, but let's make sure we kind of lay out who the agents and actors are in that. And uh, my faith question, love thy neighbor. uh, Don't we have a Christian duty to go defend
1: Ukraine from a biblical standpoint? Peter, you got something to say on this? I think no. (laughs) I think there are circumstances where defending someone from active aggression of someone else is probably the right thing to do but if anything, the Bible biases us in the other direction when it comes to armed conflicts. Turn the other cheek maybe doesn't mean that you can never retaliate or defend yourself, but it also doesn't mean nothing at all. So there, there's kind of a, a weird idea that like we can love our neighbors through war. I, I just like that the connection to me isn't that solid. I think that, especially in our world today, wars tend to not actually be tr- trying to do the things that we say and so of course we went into iraq because uh saddam hussein was this you know terrible guy and he had weapons of mass destruction and you know, all these awful things were happening uh but no that's not why you know there there were strategic military reasons why we went into uh, iraq there were no weapons of mass destruction we of course learned this later you know what did we go into uh afghanistan because osama bin laden did 9-11 well uh we know there's a lot there was a lot of saudi arabian officials who had like some sort of communications about uh 9-11 we didn't go into saudi arabia so i i I don't believe people who say that they uh, or at least i have a hard time believing people who say that they're going into a war to protect the people of you know some country I, i think war tends to be more selfish especially when it's not in defense of your own country
0: Well, I I think to the principle of subsidiarity with I think originated with Catholic thought that uh, we have a higher moral obligation to people that are close to us. And I think of the love thy neighbor that it was very intentional that it is actually people close to us. Now, that could be the Good Samaritan walking along the street just because we don't know that it could be a stranger, but you were still near that person on the street when they were when they were harmed. And so I, I think there's something there. I think Dr. Clark talks about permissible partiality, which is probably kind of similar in terms of moral obligation. Am I right on that, Justin?
2: Yeah, principle of permissible partiality says that you're permitted to value people who are close to you more than people who are further away from you. And and that closeness can be
1: either emotional or physical or uh, temporal. And by the way, there, there's also a functional reason to have that, even if like you didn't believe in that principle from a moral perspective, it is a functional principle. What I mean by that is maybe well, let's say, let's assume our politicians are benevolent and we got involved <laughs> in Libya because we wanted to help the Libyan people. Gaddafi was evil dictator, by the way, that we set up, but he, he's an evil dictator. We didn't know it at the time. Now we do know it. we have to go on and stop it. Let's assume that's true. Is Libya better off today because of our involvement? I'm going to say probably no. There was a period where the Muslim Brotherhood took over. I think since then, you know, they've been kind of thrown from power. But uh, the country fell into chaos I'm not sure we have any good track record. I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to bring up other
0: ones too. I mean, Saddam Hussein, you go down the list, like this whole long-term business that we were talking about before, our track record's awful of helping bring democracy or however you want to phrase it. We really don't have a good track record of
1: that. Yeah.
2: Open air slave markets in Libya. Yes. Uh, You know, there were in Libya uh, under Gaddafi. I mean, there were children's hospitals. There weren't open air slave markets. Uh, Maybe it wasn't. uh, That's going on right now. Open air slave
1: markets. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's uh, my my dissertation advisor, Chris Coyne, wrote a whole book on this it's called after war, which is, you know, he basically chronicled the US efforts to sort of rebuild in Afghanistan, Iraq afterwards. And just, uh, I mean, the ultimate conclusion, the really simple conclusion is like, we are not the Adam Smith's man of the system, we are not these planners who have perfect yeah. information, perfect knowledge can predict the future. Uh, it's really hard to implement our institutions in places that are fundamentally different. us for a bunch of different
0: reasons. And and I think one example of where it worked was where we didn't get involved. So when the USSR broke up and those countries chose on their own, like Lithuania, uh, the Baltic, uh, Estonia, Latvia, and then there's some other places that chose a more democratic freedom path as opposed to other countries that took the, the more authoritarian path, and now we see better results in those places. There, it's actually shown evidence of working over the long haul, but it came organically with them deciding that was the right path, right? Rather than us telling them and orchestrating it.
1: I mean, the whole point of our democracy is to have voluntary exchange, and then we go to a country to implement our way of doing things involuntarily. So,
2: from the premise of the get go, flawed. Yeah. yeah. You asked me to explain the military industrial complex. So the quote itself, the the term, the military industrial complex, comes from Dwight Eisenhower's farewell speech as president, right? And the actual quote is, in the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. And, uh, you know, when Eisenhower was giving the speech, um, this was after World War Two, right? Eisenhower himself was a military man. Right. Uh, but the military industrial complex since Eisenhower's speech it usually refers to this conglomeration of the Department of Defense, the CIA and the uh, like the weapons industry, the industry. Um, And you can find critics of the military industrial complex on both the left and the right. The the claim is that the military industrial complex actually kind of runs the government, right? And that they control our foreign policy and that our foreign policy only makes sense if you assume that this kind of cabal is actually controlling it. So even somebody like Noam Chomsky will say, you know, before World War II, we used to fight, we used to build bases abroad in order to help us fight wars. But since World War Two, that's actually been reversed. And now what we do is we start wars in order to build bases abroad, so that the US, uh, the US military can have these kind of tentacles all the way around the globe. Mm-hmm. And I think, You've seen this in a lot of places where, you know, once we set up the bases, even if the war ends, the bases usually don't go away. Uh, We're still in Iraq. We're still all over Europe. And this, to bring it back to like Russia and Ukraine, the expansion of NATO into Ukraine. Like NATO is nominally the North Atlantic organization, which is how does Ukraine fit into that? Right. And it was ostensibly, (laughs) you know a defense against communism, right? Uh, which the Soviet Union no longer exists. So if you are somebody like Russia and you start to see powers that seem antagonistic to you kind of building up uh, on your border, um, that that might give you pause.
0: Yeah, and I think um, it, it gives rise to, uh, you know, the power of monopoly, essentially, with uh, basically the ultimate control. How could they... How could they work that way? Um, Because cartels tend to break down over time. But when you have the coercive force of being funded through taxes, and still relatively speaking, by the way, um, federal tax dollars is about 65%. It floats around between 60 and up to 70 uh, of just being transfer payments. So really 30, 20, 30% is you know, weapons and mass destruction and other roads and bridges and blah, blah, blah. And I'm really, you know, lumping. So relatively speaking of the overall federal budget, it's still not a a huge amount of dollars from the federal budget standpoint. So to them, it's always like, we're going to save lives, right? So the cost benefit analysis gets messed up because we're going to save lives and it doesn't matter what they cost. Lives are infinite, so we can spend as
1: much money. There's not many pulls on the purse string yeah and just to highlight i i, I want to point out that this is not for any country that's engaged in a lot of conflicts this isn't something that's really avoidable and it's also not like a, a conspiracy that's unique to a particular place in time i think it just flows pretty simply from like economic logic and like the facts about war and the facts about war are war is very expensive Any time that you are engaged in war, you're willing to sacrifice a lot to win that war. War is by its nature high stakes. In World War II, today, wars are always very expensive relative to the amount of wealth in the country. That's, you know, the the first piece to keep in mind. And I think, like, you know, there are really extreme examples of this, like the F-35 is an infamous, like, jet that is, like, sort of still in the Army or in the Air Force, but it's, like, kind of failed. It's cost, like, now close to, I think, like, a trillion dollars some crazy dollar tag and is basically widely known to be a failure of a project Uh, so we're talking about you know billions of dollars for planes and all these different things and the government doesn't produce this private companies produce this and when you have this relationship between private companies who can make billions of dollars of revenue and the government who needs the things from the private companies that's going to create the desire of these companies to have political relationships and to you know be able to call policy shots if your bottom line is determined by your relationships in washington dc you're going to make good relationships with washington dc which gives you sway over policy so there's no conspiracy here this just flows straight out of the logic that if you have government involved with really, really big purchases and you have industries that rely on those purchases, the industries are going to try to affect government decisions. It's just absolutely should be expected. What do we do when that happens? I think that unfortunately, like this is one of those situations. And I say unfortunately because this is hard, but the the best uh, answer to this is to just say no. Like, I think that's that's where we're at. And I don't mean just say no to lobbyists. I think it's just say no to having a large military, having having, uh, you know, a huge complex around the world just to mention military bases you know there's no real reason why we need a military base in germany right now but we have one it's like you know it's not we're not world war ii anymore or post world war ii recently there's no you know nazi re- re-rising threat in germany on the horizon the, the defense department will tell you there is in the country uh but that's neither here nor there uh, the point is like there, there's no threat there we don't need a base there we need to cut it i'm not in favor of cutting def- uh you know ron paul was famous for kind of saying this i'm not in favor of cutting defense spending i think we need to defend our country but a lot of military spending isn't defense spending we don't need the proactive bases in the majority of countries in the world we don't need to be developing billion dollar jets when we have plenty of jets and you know nuclear weapons and things like this there's just a lot of money that's being spent uh the the best way to get rid of this problem is just to uh, lower the amount of spending we have on our military. That's the only way that you're going to convince people to spend less try- time trying to lobby the government.
0: Well, and I think we've come up with the answers on this podcast as we start to wind this thing down. The moral issue can be handled in the private sector. If every, any individuals that feel there's a moral obligation, there can be a nonprofit that's set up to help or defend or, or buy weapons for that matter, or whatever. So that's a private alternative to the, to the moral argument. And, um, that's, uh, whether this would lead to, uh, hurting the long, uh, long-term success of the United States or something, I think we've kind of debunked that through reason that we just have an awful track record of that actually working. And it becomes more and more obvious that I don't think we'll have trouble defending our own borders here with the technology that we have and the current military levels that we have. Um, so yeah, done. We just have to convince, uh, you know. Washington, D.C. and some other people.
2: So I did say that you can find critics of the military industrial complex on both the left and the right. And that's true. But the bigger problem is that you find many, many, many more advocates of the military industrial complex on both the left and the right. Sure. This is a bipartisan program that is beloved by the state. And it's not just beloved by the state. It's also beloved by the corporate press. You will look have to look far and wide to find actual, you know, corporate press being angry uh, or saying, you know, taking anything like a, you know, what they would call an isolationist pose, right? Which really just means uh, keeping our hands to ourselves. Yeah. Uh, even when Trump was in office, um, you found him being uh, described glowingly when he bombed Syria. Um, that was the one time, uh, you know, on CNN, um, they were praising him I uh, found this, like, I believe in NPR too, but definitely on CNN. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's you really have your work cut out for you. If you want to get this message out because you have an entire corporate media landscape that is um, wedded to, um, yeah. Yeah. to the, opposite.
0: it's a, it's a big time David versus Goliath deal. I mean, there's, there's no doubt the, the, the very small libertarian ish party, The only one that's really put forth the ideas of shrinking it or not doing that type of stuff. And so, yeah, it's very entrenched in both the Republican and
1: Democratic Party, so. Yeah, and again, with the military industrial complex in its nature, it shouldn't surprise us. And just to kind of shore up my, my answer to Luke here, that we have some military spending that's not defense spending, The U.S. spends more money on its military than the next 11 countries combined. So you add up Russia, you (laughs) add up China, you add up India, you add up the U.K., you add up France, Germany, Japan, South Korea, Italy, Australia, Saudi Arabia. We spend more than all of those countries when you add it together. Uh, Russia spends a tenth, basically, uh, somewhere between a tenth and a fifth of what we do on our military. Is Russia a serious threat to the U.S.? Maybe someday but probably not today. Now, of course, everybody's a serious threat in one sense that we all have nuclear weapons now. Uh, but, it, you know, do we need to expand the U.S. military's reach more than we have already? I doubt it. Uh, we're already spending basically 10 times what they're spending. Not only does Russia have nukes, though, they've been purchasing Facebook ads. Oh, <laughs> that's right. that's
0: the right. weapon of Facebook. Well, yeah, that's going so to have to wait for another
2: podcast.
0: This has been a production of the Gorton Institute here at Ottawa University. I'd like to thank you all for listening. A five-star rating helps other people find us. And please forward our podcast info to your friends and family. Other than that, be fruitful multiply. Thanks.